So I want to read to you Genesis chapter 22. And it's a very strange story. It's a story about Abraham who struggled to have a son with his wife Sarah. And after she does have a son, God comes and tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. And this story is called the binding of Isaac because uh, the Jewish um, interpreters saw that the binding of Isaac becomes the predominant idea here in the story. So listen as I read. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up, and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So that is a strange story, isn't it? Really weird. 
And uh, I thought it was reflected in this cartoon pretty well, okay? Here's the wood for the sacrifice, Dad, Abraham says, groovy. Here's the dagger for the sacrifice, Dad, keen. Well, where's the sacrifice? God will provide, Isaac. Wait, did you say God will provide, comma, Isaac, or God will provide Isaac? Come here, son. And he says, I ain't budging you till you put in a comma. <laughs> Isn't that clever? Well, you know what? <clears throat> when we come to stories like this, it really does depend upon where you put the comma. So keep that in the back of your mind, okay? Rabbi Abraham Heschel says this, To find the true meaning, search deeply each interpretation. You will find their struggles, worries, and yearnings, eternal problems and contemporary questions, the travails of community and individual that vex the sages and nation as a whole. Take a moment and pray with me as we try to figure out what's going on in this story. So, Father, at times, your word is crystal clear. God is love. God is light. God is spirit. We're no, we know that because these are declarations made by the writers of Scripture. But if we're truthful, we at times might feel that God is angry. God is confusing. God cannot be pleased. We pray that as we open this story today that you'll help us to see with better clarity what it is saying and what it is not saying. Give us wisdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we are in a series right now uh, talking about deeper, wider, and higher. And right now we're looking at some stories that we need to go deeper in if we're going to understand what it is saying. So in this emphasis on deeper, we're taking some stories that maybe you have heard before, maybe you haven't, and we are trying to understand at a deeper level what it is trying to tell all of us. So if you have your Bible, just kind of keep it open at Genesis chapter 22. And as you do so, I said a couple of weeks ago, whenever you read something in the scripture, there's different levels in which you can read. So we talked about the swimmer's level. This is just the story in general. You're familiar with the storyline and characters. Then there's kind of the snorkel level, where you kind of go below the water a little bit, and you get some of the basic points of the story. And then there's the scuba level, where when you go way down and you see the multitude of colors way down below the water, it becomes a template in some ways of what we all struggle with. And I think what we'll find in this story, the binding of Isaac, you need to get to the scuba level if you're going to understand what is happening and what is not happening. So when I was 29 years old, I became a father for the first time. And from that first moment, Esty and I, we held our premature baby of three weeks in our arms. And we knew that it would change our entire life. He was tiny, 5 pounds, 11 ounces. He came suddenly as he was getting up for work. We were living in Dallas at the time. I was going through seminary. 
And as soon as the alarm clock went off, he decided it was time to come into the world. As we arrived at Baylor Medical Center in Dallas, we waited and we waited. And some of his vital signs became unstable. And we worried. And we worried. We found out that the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck and that he would need some assistance in coming into the world. And so finally on July the 7th, he entered the world with the help of a C-section. And now our hearts and our hopes and our dreams were bound up with this little man. And we've been loving and caring and protecting this gift from God for over 35 years now. And we thank God for Kevin. Now, if God ever came to me and said, take your son, your first son, to a mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him to me, bind him up and place him on an altar and set fire to him, I would say to God, no, I'm not going to do that. And I think most parents would do the same. And that's what makes this story so strange. If you know the backstory, you know that Abraham and Sarah wanted to have a son for a long, long time. And Sarah was barren, and their hopes and their dreams vanished as they aged. They were both quite old. But God would make a promise. In Genesis chapter 17, in the giving of the Abrahamic covenant, when Abraham was 99 years old, there was the promise that Abraham was going to have descendants. And these descendants would come from him and Sarah. In Genesis chapter 18, there are three visitors that come to the tent of Abraham and Sarah. And they open their tent and they offer hospitality to these three visitors. And one of these visitors speaks up and says, by the time I come by this way again, in the next season, in other words, a year from now, your wife will give birth to a son. And Sarah, who is preparing the hospitality, is in the tent while Abraham and these three visitors are outside the tent, and she begins to laugh. And one of the visitors says, why is your wife laughing? And she denies it. Well, they go on their way, and a year later, they come by again. And Sarah has conceived, and she gives birth to a son, and they name him Isaac, which means laughter. Because a year prior, she had laughed about the possibility that she would have a son at her old age. Well, if we were to swim a little bit, we would end the story right there. According to the story, what we find is this son, who is a unique gift from God, is put in jeopardy. And as we look at it, we might resign ourselves to the fact that Abraham, who had listened to God before and was given this promise that he would have a land and he would have descendants. Yet, 
now he listens and his laughter along with his wife Sarah will turn to anxiety. Now Abraham is going to face a test of faith. And like I said, it's a test most parents would fail. But this chapter begins with a voice. A voice that calls out to Abraham and says, Abraham, and he says, here I am. He had heard that voice before. That voice that came to him and told him to leave his family and to leave the city of Ur. You are, that's the name of the city, and to go to a place I will show you. And he sets out and he does so. And eventually God says, see, this land is going to be yours and it is there you will have descendants that will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Well, now this command comes along and Abraham doesn't say anything. He doesn't say no. What he does is basically acquiesce. It says here, he doesn't say a thing, but he gets up the next morning, he loads his donkey, and he sets out. Three days later, he will find this place called Mount Moriah, and he will set up an altar. Can you imagine this? The voice comes with the intent to test Abraham, and the test is this, get your son, get a knife, slit his throat, and set him on fire. Wow. Abraham doesn't say anything. Doesn't that strike you as a little odd? Abraham doesn't push back, but as you read the text, he goes through with it. Now, are we sort of like mice in a lab that God feels it's okay to test us anytime that he wants to see how we're going to respond? Well, we need to get a little bit deeper. Let's snorkel for a few moments. So down below the waterline here is this idea of was Abraham really willing to murder his son? Initially, he says, here I am. But more confusing than God's command, to me anyways, is the lack of Abraham's intervention. Abraham, just a few chapters earlier, when he was told that there was judgment coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah, said, please, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, will you spare the city? How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? Goes all the way down to 10. You know, Abraham had intervened before for his nephew Lot. What on earth is going on here? But not here. He binds his son. Now, the Hebrew word for bind is akad. And this is what has led Jewish people to call this story akadah, the binding of Isaac. And what we find is here the rabbis begin to see a problem. And they begin to push back on this story a little bit. And so they reimagine the interchange between Abraham and God. And so this is how they came up with their solution, or at least maybe one explanation. They say, Abraham said to 
him, I have two sons. And God said to him, no, not the son Ishmael, right? Through Hagar, the slave servant. No, and the text says here, your only son. And then names the son Isaac. Well, the rabbis think that maybe, maybe Abraham pushed back by saying, I have two sons. And of course, I'll sacrifice Ishmael, but I want to preserve Isaac. And so they try to reimagine the conversation. Even though that conversation goes the way it does, here we see in the text that it's very specific. No, not Ishmael, Isaac. So now what we need to do is we need to scuba a little bit. Does the silence of Abraham matter in this story? Shouldn't he lament or complain? He's more stoic. As you listen to the story, he's more stoic. How should we feel about his actions or more importantly, his inactions? Does God really test him in this story? And as a result of that, here's how it applies to us. Should we blindly do what we think God is telling us to do? Or should we evaluate it? Should we question it? Should we push back on it? Should we clarify it? Should we say, this doesn't sound like God to me? Well, let's go a little bit further. So the story goes on, and as it goes on, Isaac raises a question. As they get closer to Mount Moriah, they have the wood, they have the fire, but they don't have a sacrifice. And what we're told here is Isaac raises the question, where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice, Father? The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb? And then Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. Shouldn't Isaac have been able to do a little bit of arithmetic here? Because here we're reading this story. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, run, Isaac, run. <laughs> right? Don't you see all of this is adding up? to disaster. It reminds me of that commercial where a group of friends see a running car, but they decide to hide behind a wall of chainsaws. Have you ever seen that commercial? It's kind of, you know. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Why don't you get out of here before it's too late? And so we now come to this climactic scene. And the climactic scene is where Abraham in almost his robotic obedience begins to bind Isaac to the altar. He raises a knife and he is about to slit his throat and then set him on fire. Now, one thing that we're not told in the text, but if we do a little bit of arithmetic, Isaac's not a little boy here. Most scholars believe by doing a little bit of study in the gene genealogies that Isaac is probably about 35. 37 years old here. So Isaac is a grown adult. Isaac could have wiped his dad out. His dad's a hundred now, you know. It would have been easy for him to just run away or to resist. But he doesn't, which is something 
further complexing to me. Why doesn't Isaac resist? Why doesn't he just beat up his dad and head back home? Well, it seems here that we need to dive a little bit deeper. Is that what the story really means? The common interpretation that you'll hear from pulpits is that we are called into passive obedience to God just like Abraham. I want to push back on that. This creates an image of God, to me at least, that's problematic. What kind of God needs a person to prove himself like this? And what kind of God demands the sacrifice of a child? It only takes a few books later that we find out that one of the reasons that Joshua is told to get rid of the Canaanites and drive them out of the land is because of child sacrifice. So something's not adding up here. So what, how do we come to a better resolution? Well, there's a key concept here, and it's told in verse 1, when it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, that word tested is quite unique and interesting. The word test in Hebrew can also mean tempt. And if it is translated tempting to sacrifice Isaac, that brings to us a little bit more clarity because when you get into the New Testament, if we were to ask the question, does God really tempt people? James, in chapter 1, verse 13, says quite clearly, God does not tempt. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So if this is a test, it's one thing, but if it's a temptation, maybe something else is going on. So a better understanding might come from Jewish Midrash. Now, Jewish Midrash is a way of interpreting something that pushes back on accepting something blindly and continuing to ask questions about it. So if we do a little bit of midrash, and the Jews are okay with this, they don't passively accept anything. Where there are two Jews, there's an argument, as the, <laughs> as the old saying goes. Because that's part of an, the art form of getting to the heart of wisdom, is pushback, questioning, and beginning to dialogue on these things. So there's a book that was found in 1947 among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? It's a collection of scrolls that was found that has a lot of Old Testament text in it. They were writings that were preserved by the Essene community, which we believe that maybe John the Baptist had joined. However, this community felt that they were living in an apocalyptic time, and they began to take their sacred writings write them down and put them into uh, jars and hide them in caves. One day there was a shepherd boy that was throwing rocks into some of the caves while he's watching the flock and he heard a crash. He goes in to investigate and there's all these scrolls that are found and it becomes a real gem for Bible interpreters because now they have something to compare the Old Testament we have with a community of people 
that had much older manuscripts. Does that make sense? And you compare the two, it's called textual criticism, to see what is accurate and what's not accurate. Well, there's this book that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Book of Jubilees. Now, it's found in the Apocrypha. So, in in a Catholic Bible or um, in a Greek Orthodox Bible, you have an additional set of books that sit between the Old and the New Testament. And the Apocrypha is a grouping of books that gives kind of fuller information about certain stories of the Old Testament. And the Book of Jubilees is called the Lesser Genesis. In other words, it talks about the text of Genesis and it retells the story of Abraham binding Isaac. And here's the way the story is told. And it happened, there were voices in heaven regarding Abraham, that he was faithful in all God told him, and that he loved the Lord, and that in every affliction he was faithful. And the prince, Mastima, came and said before God, Abraham does not love, uh, excuse me, Abraham does indeed love his son Isaac and finds him more pleasing than anyone else. Tell him to offer him as a sacrifice on an altar. Then you will see whether he performs this order and will know whether he is faithful in everything through which you test him. That's Jubilees chapter 17 verse 16. Now does that language sound familiar to you though? Do you th remember the book of Job? Job is quite successful in all that he does, and there's this figure at the, begin of the beginning of the book of Job that comes and accuses Job of being a paid lover. In other words, the only reason he loves God is because of all the prosperity that he is receiving from God. So this figure, the accuser, then says, if you take all of this away from Job, he will curse you to your face. This is a very similar idea that's going on here in the book of Jubilees. But the name here is Mestima, and it comes from a Hebrew word, Mestim, which is uh, where we can get a little bit of this idea of Satam, which is the one who is an adversary, one who comes to accuse. So according to the book of Jubilees, Mestima was the chief of the spirits and very similar to what Often Christianity promotes as Satan, yet Mastima was under God's command and could not, um, you know, have absolute power, but needs to obey the orders of God. So let's think about this story from the Jubilee's perspective. If this is not a test but a temptation, then maybe what this story is saying is Abraham thinks that God is telling him to go sacrifice his son Isaac, but the source of that is from a different uh, influence. In other words, the Jews that are thinking of Mastima in the book of Jubilees thinks of an adversary that will often confuse us and often cause us to make foolish choices. Now if that is true, maybe what Jubilees is implying is that Mastima is the source of this action of Abraham. And if that is true, 
what is going to have to happen is God is going to have to intervene to prevent Isaac being killed. And that's exactly what the story says, right? Right at the last moment when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, an angel of the Lord appears and stops him. You see how confusing this uh, story is? Now, what is also interesting in this text, and I'm going to bring it all together in just a moment, okay? So here's the Jubilee 1716. This is often an artistic rendition of Mastema, uh, where Mastema comes and accuses Abraham of uh, following God, again, just like Job, uh, because of all the prosperity and promises of God. Well, there's one other thing that's interesting here. The first part of the story uses one name for God, and the last part of the story uses a different name for God. Why? Wouldn't the author be consistent all the way through the story? Now, stick with me here. I told you this is a deep dive, right? There are different resources that bring these stories together. These resources are often then combined together, and I think we have a case here. The first name for God is in the first 10 verses, where the name for God is Elohim. Elohim. Elohim is a plural name, and it suggests that the ancients believed that there was a host of gods, but it happened to be that the God of Israel was the supreme God to which all the other gods were subservient. If that is the mindset of Abraham when he lived, perhaps what is going on here is that he feels that God is asking him to do what all the gods ask those who are faithful to do. Make some type of sacrifice to show you're worthy. Make some type of sacrifice to show that you're obedient. So you read down verses 1 through 10, it's Elohim, 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 Elohim. But when you get down to where God intervenes, where God prevents Abraham from doing this dastardly deed, well, the name changes. And the name that is entered into, beginning in verse 12 through 19, is Yahweh. That's the name that was revealed to Moses from the burning bush. That's the covenant name of God. When you're reading your Bible, it's represented by all caps, L-O-R-D. L-O-R-D, represented in all capital letters, is the name Yahweh. So what does that mean? Yahweh is the personal name of God, the name that comes when we need intervention and help and resource. When Abraham saw God as Elohim, he passively obeyed. When God reveals himself as Yahweh, Abraham now is given a reason to not offer his son Isaac, but this ram that's caught in the thicket. And then he names this place, the Lord will provide. What a huge difference in perspective here. 
that Abraham, like we all do, have to transition and grow in our understanding of God. Does that make sense? Sometimes the way we have been raised and what we have been taught has given to us a shaded understanding of God. And sometimes this is not a full picture of God, but it's kind of looking like through a peephole. And as we look through a peephole, we think, oh, God wants me to do this, God wants me to do that, and I'm not going to question it because I'm afraid of this God, right? I'm afraid of this type of God, so I better just do what this God asked me to do. But all of a sudden, if we stop looking through the peephole and we open the door and we step outside and we see that God reveals himself in the person of Jesus, and the personal name of God revealed to Moses is Yahweh, is a God that doesn't demand these type of uh, temptations because James already told us God does not tempt us. What he does is provide in his time and in his way. So I want to ask you a question as we begin to wind down here. How do you see God? Do you see him as Elohim or as Yahweh? How do I see God? Do I see him as this stern judge that can never be pleased, that is always trying to accuse, or is he this God that provides? Provides strength, provides wisdom, and provides understanding. And maybe, just maybe, what we are all in process of doing in our life is getting a better understanding of God. What if one of the central goals of faith is to enable us to grow and to transform from where we are to a better perspective? To do that, we, like Abraham, must discern the voice of God among all the other voices. And the voice here in this story might come not from God, but from the accuser, from the tempter, from the one who would love to trip us up and cause us misery. Our participation in moving forwards not an easy thing. It challenges our assumptions, and we might even experience a little bit of trauma before our eyes are open and we begin to understand in new ways. Could this story be symbolic of the journey many of us have been on? leaving behind understandings of God that are too small and embracing a vision of God that's more expansive, more compassionate, and more inclusive than we ever thought possible. Over the course of our lifetime, our understanding of God must change dramatically. So how do we do that? Perhaps this story is telling us to keep going forward, keep moving forward, because belief in God as a cruel God is not a good way to live your life. Actually, belief in a cruel God makes for cruel people. How many people have we met who believe in God only as this stern judge and they're miserable people to be around? They're judgmental, condescending, arrogant, rather than inclusive and compassionate. So the story should not be used to justify our suffering and silence in, without objection. That's why I began the reading with Psalms this morning. The psalmist had no problem pushing back on God. And so sometimes we need to take hold of God and pull. 
sometimes we need to be honest with God because he already knows what's already inside of our heart. Remember to take hold of God and pull. Job did, the psalmist did, and Abraham could have because God does not tempt people to evil. So maybe this story tells us a lot more than on the surface. When we go to the scuba level, maybe God takes a risk that Abraham would respond to a deeper understanding. And Abraham would have to take a risk that God would provide a deeper compassion. You see, if God is only power and not love, then it can justify all kinds of atrocities like rape and genocide and eternal conscious torment. And our moral compass is all messed up. But if God is one who loves and continues to love and forgive, and that it's shown to us through the person of Jesus, we reset our moral compass so that we can make a better world by being more compassionate, forgiving, and serving as well. So what I'd like to do is, uh, can uh, one of you, Mark, can you go get Corey and have him come back? And we're going to do a closing song here in a moment. But I'd like for you to stand with me. And I think it's often important to confess the fact that we have our doubts about God. We have misperceptions of God. And it either causes us to do certain things or causes us not to do certain things. So I think a good way to kind of finish this message today is by us in unison uh, reciting this confession of our sin together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I guess it does matter where you put the comma, right? And so maybe this story leads us into a better understanding. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do because of fuller revelation. And we're thankful for that, right? We're not stuck back in a primitive understanding of God. But even our understanding of God right now is limited. And into the future, God will continue to show us what he is like. And when we see him, we will be thankful. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. Hope to see you soon. God bless.